Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the uptick in strikes across the country taking place with 176 launched this year so far and get an analysis of what is behind this post-COVID release of pressure in the workplace as billionaires make record profits and the cost of living rises. Joining us is an organiser, author and scholar, Jane McAlevey, the Nation magazine strikes correspondent, who is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. The author of A Collective Bargain, Unions Organising in the Fight for Democracy, we'll discuss this new era of labor relations and the reform movements underway inside unions at the Teamsters and the UAW, among others, and how it was the rank and file of the 10,000 UAW workers at the John Deere facility in Waterloo, Iowa, who walked off the job after rejecting a two-tier agreement their union leaders made with management. Then we'll examine the state collapse in Haiti that has led to criminal gangs controlling transportation routes and neighborhoods whose leaders are intimidating what passes for a government while engaged in the kidnapping and extortion of dirt-poor citizens and now U.S. missionaries. Brian Concannon, a human rights lawyer and founder and former director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, who served as a human rights officer with the U.N. in Haiti, joins us to discuss how decades of U.S. puppeteering that has prevented the Haitian people from electing a government that serves them has now resulted in a failed state we are making worse by deporting desperate Haitians back to chaos and lawlessness. Then finally, we will speak with Cass Muda, a professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, as well as a professor at the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo the host of the podcast Radical. His latest book is The Far Right Today, and he is a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is Surprised to see U.S. Republicans cozying up to the European far right? Don't be. We will discuss the four major strands of the far right international network that has the likes of Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson embracing and participating in. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jane McAlevey, who's the Nation Magazine's Strikes Correspondent, an organizer, author, and scholar. She is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. And her latest book is A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jane McAlevey. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the news is dominated today by the death of Colin Powell, who's understandably getting a lot of coverage because of his stature and service to the nation. But unions and strikes and labor issues 
perennially don't get much coverage. But it seems that there's been an uptick in strikes in this country. And so far, there have been 176 strikes that have been launched this year. So something's happening out there, and you're following it. So tell us what's going on, Jane. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. I mean, I would start by saying it, it is my belief, uh, especially working on the, the most recent book, which you mentioned, The Collective Bargain, it is my, and just being in the field a lot, it is my belief that this predates the pandemic, and the pandemic is just aggravating what was already uh, a lot of anger in the field. So if you think back to 2018, it's almost impossible, I find, for any of us to think back pre-pandemic. But if we if we go back just till 2018, the largest number of strikes in 30 years took place in, this, in the United States took place in 2018. So by by numbers of people who went on strike in 2018, it was still larger than we're seeing this year, though this year it's numbers of strikes, but they're smaller strikes. So they're interesting and they're slightly different and we need a lot more of both, uh, in my humble opinion, to reset the insanity um, of inequality that's going on in this country. So I think it begins in 2018. We had six pretty massive education strikes led by teachers and education workers and a whole red states, blue states right across the country that poured into early 2019 with a hundred percent outstrike by 34,000 teachers in Los Angeles with about 50,000 parents joining them in the streets every day for 75,000 people marching through downtown Los Angeles, you know, in an open-ended strike, which is for, for, for your listeners who may not know this as someone who's run strikes, it's when we do an open-ended strike that it's the most high risk. So, you know, we, we marched into early 2019, again, pre-pandemic, with the huge strikes in Los Angeles and Oakland. We had in on the private sector side, the giant Marriott strikes that went on in seven cities that culminated in the fall of 2018. And then, you know, this period of, uh, this period heading into what becomes the pandemic sets in. So, and I think it had the effect of everyone scrambling, workers genuinely trying to solve the crisis of you know, CEOs and employers and shareholders kind of walk, like walking, running away from the crisis, literally onto their yachts, onto their, now onto their rockets, you know, and sort of saying, good luck, you know, keep the shop running and keep the food coming. Um, and I, and I know for registered nurses and hospital workers who I've spent most of my adult life with, and that's who I've run strikes with, uh, in addition to some others, but like mostly with hospital workers, that even though they were overwhelmed by the disrespect of a system that was not providing personal protective equipment, they're like so mission driven, they were sacrificing their lives for the entire first year of this pandemic, just going in, sleeping in their cars, afraid to go home to their kids and poison them, you know, all of it. It was just, so now that the vaccine happens in this country, right, to be clear, it's very inequitable how we're dealing with the vaccine too across the world. But in this country, the vaccine coupled with uh, the out continuing ongoing outrageous employer behavior, I think, is now boomeranging into what's going to become an even uh, more intense movement by workers to demand that which they deserve, which is first and foremost, you know, safety on the job. Um, and then secondly, a decent quality of life, you know, the right to the weekend, the right to time off, the right to far more pay now that they've literally watched their employers walk away and leave them the job of running the grocery stores, running the farms, you know, keeping us fed, 
um, and entertained, as we saw with the most recent struggle, which is still a debate whether or not they're ratifying with the with IATSE, with the stagehand workers union, right, who have a tentative agreement. But we were entertained by people busting their butt in the streamers and, and online movie department. So everyone has had it. Everyone's been abused and everyone is ready to start fighting for what they deserve. That's really what's happening. And again, I'm speaking with Jane McAlevey, The Nation magazine's strikes correspondent an organizer, author, and scholar. She's currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. And her latest book is A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. So that's just uh, quickly, I'll run through some of the strikes that are happening at the moment. 10,000 workers have walked off the job at the John Deere factories in Waterloo, Iowa. That's the first time in 35 years. 2,000 hospital workers are striking in Buffalo. 1,400 production workers for Kellogg's in four states are on strike. 450 steel workers in Huntington, West Virginia are on strike. There's been a walk-off of 2,000 telecommunications workers in California, 1,000 Alabama coal miners, 700 nurses in, in Massachusetts, 400 whiskey makers in Kentucky, 200 bus drivers in Reno, Nevada, and 37,000 health care workers at Kaiser in Oregon and California and Hawaii. And uh, you, you just mentioned it as well, Jane, there are 60,000 film and television workers with IATSE here in Los Angeles and Hollywood that were about to go on strike with a membership voting 98% to strike, and that was just settled at the last minute. A lot obviously happening, as you say, they're smaller strikes, but they're a lot more of them, right? Yes, absolutely. And so far, I mean, the Kaiser and that Kaiser strike is forth, you know, forthcoming, I think. But um, mm. I, I think what's happening is when workers see other workers walk off the job and then make gains, which people are seeing, then they realize or they see their production workers, you know, the 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 stage work, the stage hands and the theater workers from IATSE, you know, or they see people flexing their muscles and winning either way. I think that's helping to revive the idea in the United States uh, for far too long, largely dormant, um, that collective action through workers still most powerful weapon, which is walking off the job united together, not by the way, the mass quitting that's going on. I mean, I, I there's a lot of talk about you know, the 4 million people who quit their jobs in August, which is a, a record of sorts. For an organizer like myself, that's it. That's sociologically kind of interesting with my sociology hat on, but with my organizer hat on, collective action is what gets the goods, not just individual, you know, dissatisfaction, you know, with a crappy system that was really laid bare in the pandemic. I mean, I really think that millions of workers woke up and realized we are absolutely, completely uh, undervalued, if not completely dismissed and devalued. They don't care if we die on the job. They don't care what happens to us on the job. And you, you, you contrast this with something that is becoming more, more visible, which is the grotesque wealth at the end, other end of the economic ladder, right? I mean, I was, I was leading a big series of organizing trainings all through the pandemic online, something that allowed us to actually scale up the capacity, like 10,000 organizers at a time from around the world have been climbing onto Zooms to figure out how do we how do we do this, right? From 111 different countries and 12 languages, and the issues are the same across the world. Everybody is getting 
undermined. And I had a series of statistics I was using about the, you know, yacht shortage. There is literally, you know, a series of really gvetching kind of articles in the Financial Times, right, the Wall Street Journal of Europe. There's a whole series they did in May on the shortage of workers who can produce super yachts for the billionaire class. And the billionaires really want a lot more yachts because they literally just come out and say it in these articles. They, they're trying to get out of here during the COVID right. pandemic and now the right. Delta thing, right? So you've got this contrast of like billionaires complaining about how long it's taking to get a super yacht so they can move their whole family and all their friends you know, out to sea, while their workers who are bringing in their income uh, are dying on the job. I mean, I was working with United Food and Commercial Workers in California when the pandemic set out, and I had a couple of local leaders call to say, I have never spent time ever in my life burying workers and going to family funerals. So you've got people dying and you've got billionaires complaining they can't get their yachts made fast enough. And then to add insult to injury, you know, you've got Jeff Bezos going up in a in a rocket. I mean, they're literally abandoning the crisis they caused and they seemingly don't care at all. And that that is producing a level of anger that I think will push us towards more strikes. And I hope so, Ian, because the history of this country is it takes a massive number of workers in collective action to reset the power imbalance, which allows us to reset the inequality imbalance. And of course, you can't sail two yachts at the same time. So (laughs) are we entering a new era of labor relations? It feels as though at least there's some also there's some reform efforts underway with the Teamster vote against the Hoffa regime, the Toffa Jr., of course, and the IATSE, of course, has had a history of being mobbed up, starting with Willie Bioff, who started bombing projection booths in the, the early days of the movie business out here in Hollywood when they had nitrate film, because it catch on fire. And so there's a history there. So there's just two questions. Is there a change underway here? And is there also some reform going on? Yes, I think both are happening. By the way, you, you I'm a member of the UAW, interestingly, just because of the auto workers, because of the way... There were, you know, there was a period when the United Auto Workers had a sort of pink, well, they still do a pink color division, and they have a lot of academics. So interestingly, I'm a member of a union that's going through huge internal reform right now, too, right? Because there was a huge corruption scandal in the auto workers. And I just received my notification for my ballot where we're going to vote for the first time in our union to end corruption by voting for what we call direct democracy, so that the actual members of the United Auto Workers get to vote for who the president is. It's a two-tiered system, which is more like the IOTSE system right now. You know, workers don't have the right to vote that ratification up or down directly. They have like an electoral college system inside of their union. So that's another example of just layers and layers of, mm, you know, things between decision-making and the rank-and-file members. So I think there is both, um, as you are aptly describing it, with the Teamsters, and now I'm adding in the UAW with the direct democracy referendum coming up. That could not have happened without um, the recent scandals. You know, people have been calling for it in the auto workers for, for really decades for direct democracy inside the union. So I think there are people who are, and the John Deere strike is is a manifestation of workers refusing the deal that their national union accepted and rejecting the tentative agreement. So I think you're seeing workers 
exercising a kind of dual power. And again, I think American democracy depends on it. It's what I argue in the new book. The last chapter of the new book is called as go unions, so go the republic, right? So I'm making like a pretty clear argument that if workers don't stand up and rebuild bad unions and build new great unions and take collective action seriously, um, quickly, you know, we're not gonna have uh, a shred of democracy, small d democracy left in the United States or the world. Um, you know, not to mention that the climate crisis is just a, a pressure cooker um, on all of these issues. So. I think there is there are workers demanding reforms inside of their unions, which is very encouraging. And I think that those very same workers and many more are taking collective action, even Lyft and Uber drivers, delivery drivers. I mean, there's a whole bunch of workers who are not yet formally unions who are beginning to exercise great collective action. And I take, uh, you know, some optimism from that entire picture. Absolutely. So just in the last couple of minutes, talk a little bit about these two-tiered agreements that mean that younger workers get stiffed, which the uh, John Deere rank and file rejected, even though their leadership had agreed to it. Yes. Yeah. So for people who don't know what they are, they are so insidious. And I have to say, as a chief negotiator of many contracts, I have never in my life, not once ever, signed a two-tiered agreement. And that's a fact. And that is because my mentors taught me that the most divisive, destructive thing you can do inside of a union, the most destructive, is accept a two-tier agreement. So a two-tier agreement means, and you know, Ian, in some contracts in this country, they've got nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 tiers in the auto workers and in the public sector, by the way. A lot of the older legacy unions, public and private sector, have multiple tiers. And every one of them represents a defeat. Um, and people coming, new hires at various periods, coming in and having less benefits, less pension, less pay, less rights, more hours. Um, and it's a, it's, it, 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 it breeds a kind of mistrust and disunity that is palpable. Um, I have spent my life in a bunch of union struggles, overcoming tears in a contract. And I will tell you that a lot of I'll call them national position holders in various unions. <laughs> okay, taking the word leader out of there, but they hold positions. I've been debating this for decades with people as a chief negotiator and said that I have asked workers in the higher tiers in some of those packages to surrender and actually give up to try and let the rest of the workers catch up to them. That's a very difficult kind of a solidarity struggle to build. Um, and, you know, my experience is when you explain this in simple terms to workers, they get it and they do it. So it's sloppy and lazy negotiating. That is a, some strong words, I'm sure, that will make me not favorable with a few people. But I am just going to call it the way it is because the planet is burning. Like that is sloppy, lazy work on the part of union leaders or union position holders when they accept these two tier agreements. And I couldn't be more proud of the 10,000 John Deere workers none of whom I've ever met, who have rejected the idea that they will allow the young workers behind them to be sacrificed. It is a very bold and, and decisive and good move on their part. There should not be two-tier, multi-tiered agreements in the labor movement. Well, Jane McAlevey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's always good to talk to you. 
Well, and likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Jane McAlevey, who is the Nation magazine Strikes correspondent, an organizer, author, and scholar. She's currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, and her latest book is A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the state collapse in Haiti with the kidnapping and extortion of dirt-poor citizens and now U.S. missionaries. There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the hand of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand. There is power in a union. Now the lessons of the past were all learned with workers' blood. Strikes of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brian Concannon, a human rights lawyer and the executive director of Project Blueprint, which promotes a progressive human rights-based U.S. foreign policy. He's the founder and former director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti and lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Advocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Concannon. It's good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, as the Catholic Church in Haiti is describing what's happening in the country as a descent into hell, and the street gangs that have been kidnapping Haitians for the longest time are now getting bolder and now kidnapping American missionaries. Uh, Five men, seven women, and five children were returning from a visit to an orphanage. They were abducted on Saturday by a gang, the 400 Mawazo gang, which apparently operates in the northeast of Port-au-Prince. Obviously, there are other powerful gangs as well connected to the recently assassinated president. But Haitians have been suffering this for the longest time right now. It's on our radar because Americans and one Canadian have been kidnapped. Yes, Haitians have been suffering through uh, kidnappings for a long time. There are long-term factors at, at work. You have a combination of poverty, inability to provide basic government services, urban migration, and demographics leaving a lot of uh, a lot of young men in the population. All those things are going to create some gang issue in almost any context. But the in the short term, the current government, uh, led by the PHTK party, which has run Haiti for most of the last 10 years, they have been encouraging gangs. They have been uh, shielding them from legal consequences. Police cars and other police material and sometimes police officers have been used in, in gang initiatives. High-level government officials have been involved in planning and, and urging gang operations. And basically the deal struck was that the PHTK party was willing to allow the gangs a lot of latitude in return for the gangs suppressing the political opponents of the party. And to a large extent, this is, you know, this is the result of both the short and the long-term factors are coming together in a particularly horrific way for Haitians. And to illustrate that point, there was recently a kidnapping for ransom of a five-year-old 
girl who was found dead earlier this year from having been strangled. Her mother is a peanut vendor and she was unable to come up with $4,000 in ransom. So that's an example of what you're talking about. Now, of course, I think the ransoms now for this busload of American and one Canadian missionaries is probably considerably more. Apparently $20,000 is kind of the average. Uh, yes, and it's been typically the, the kidnappers, well, there, there are two types of kidnappers. Some of them are relatively unsophisticated and they can will often take what they can get. But a lot of these kidnappers have a sophisticated understanding of who their victims are, what their financial resources are, and I, I expect they will probably have a fairly uh, high ransom demand. The same gang um, is report was reportedly behind the abduction in April of 10 people, including a couple of uh, a French nun and a French priest, and who were released uh, reportedly after paying a ransom. So this seems to be uh, somewhat of a of a of a niche area for them. But gangs in general have been going after religious people, which is new in Haiti. Haiti's a very religious country with with a lot of respect for religious leaders. And uh, throughout Haiti's political violence, religious leaders have been generally protected. Uh, but it, over the last couple of months, there's been spectacular uh, kidnappings. One actually happened during a televised uh, religious service. There was one about two weeks ago, a very prominent uh, pastor was was killed when when he tried to resist a kidnapping as he was getting out of his car to go into his church. So this is uh, really expanding, and I think the the attacks against religious people shows that there just are no there are no limits. And these people, what sixteen Americans and one Canadian, who were kidnapped on Saturday in a bus, they were returning from visiting an orphanage. They're with the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries. And it seems to be, it's an evangelical operation, but it's it's actually Amish and Mennonite, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, I think that, that people are going to be targeted because they're, not necessarily because of their particular religious affiliation, but as Americans, they're going to be perceived of as having access to access to money. Um, in the past, I mean, Americans have been kidnapped from time to time over the last 20 years, but usually not at, at this rate. And most people felt that Americans were were somewhat safe because the, the kidnappers would fear that U.S. law enforcement would help them, would, would help the Haitian uh, police officials arrest them. And it seems like that fear has has evaporated. I think that the, the gangs have very little uh, concern that they will be brought to account no matter who they take. And again, I'm speaking with Brian Concannon, who's a human rights lawyer and the executive director of Project Blueprint, which promotes a progressive human rights-based U.S. foreign policy. He's the founder and former director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti and lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004 where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Avocats International, a public interest law firm. So the other gang, apart from this 400 Mwazo gang that just kidnapped the American missionaries, is the notorious gang led by 
Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier. And just on Sunday, the day after this uh, kidnapping of the missionaries, the current Prime Minister of Haiti was supposed to officiate at a at an annual ceremony to lay a wreath at the site of the assassination of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was Haiti's revolutionary founding father, right? Like the George Washington of Haiti, who was assassinated in 1806 after defeating the Napoleonic army and abolishing slavery and creating this uh, new black republic. So Ariel Henry, the prime minister, is about to show up to lay a wreath, but then he notices the gun is the gunfire and notices that the gang has moved in with Jimmy Barbecue Cherisier, a former policeman, the head of this uh, G9 gang. And he then takes over. Jimmy Barbecue takes over the ceremony and he has all of his followers there wearing these T-shirts emblazoned with the face of the late Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, who worked with this gang. And they were also behind the La Saline massacre uh, as well. So this is just outrageous, isn't it? I mean, this is a country, as, as I say, the Catholic Church is talking in Haiti, says it's descending into hell when the prime minister is driven away by a gang leader who then takes over the prime minister's duty at the tomb of the founder of the country. My God, think about that. Yes, and Cherise wore a, a very formal white tuxedo, the type of thing that the head of state wears at that at that ceremony. And he was very openly demonstrating that to a large extent, the gangs have displaced the government in, in large parts of Haiti. They're controlling security. They are controlling transportation, access, economic activities. And to some extent, this is because the government allowed that to happen. They supported these gangs, including and actually especially the G9 gang, and they fed the tiger enough that the tiger got to the point where they couldn't control it. And none of this is a surprise. You mentioned the 2017 uh, La Saline massacre, uh, 2018. In 2019, I actually went to Haiti with Representative uh, Maxine Waters, and she was in investigating the the La Saline massacre. And in her statement on the way out, she basically said, as long as impunity is allowed to allowed to exist for for that massacre, which was done by gangs, including Cherizier, but against government opponents. And uh, Representative Waters said, as long as these kinds of things are not punished, they're going to be encouraged. And that is exactly what has happened. And the nickname Barbecue comes not from the fact that he's good at throwing shrimp on the barbie, right? Well, he claims that it's actually from his, his because his mother uh, was a market woman whose, whose job was to cook chicken. But several of his opponents have said that it's because how he, how he treats some of the people that he's captured. So these missionaries have, were able to do a WhatsApp back to headquarters saying to pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, etc. I take it they'll probably have the money. How, how does this money get transacted? How do these gangs get the money through what means, Western Union or whatever? And, you know, obviously they want U.S. dollars, right? 
Yes, it'll be paid in U.S. dollars. Uh, the gangs are very good at this. They they have lots of different ways of having the money delivered in a way that doesn't put them at risk. Often it's a drop-off point, so they'll tell somebody to meet them at this intersection with you know with a bag full of money, and they'll put the person on a car and drive them somewhere else. Maybe switch cars a couple of times. Um, you know they, they're 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 experienced enough at this that it is hard to trace that, and they will you know they will threaten to kill. Uh, the hostages and the person with the money if if they see anybody following them. So this is all happening to a country that's obviously been beset with terrible problems and ha has had <laughs> acts of God, if you will, adding to their misery with earthquakes and hurricanes and the presidential palace, the equivalent of the White House, I guess, is still in ruins from the earthquake. So that's a, that's a metaphor for a kind of collapsed country. But one of the saddest parts of it, and this is, this literally you can put at the doorstep of the United States, if these Haitians who've come to the border and were underneath that bridge down on the Rio Grande, they had fled years ago, Haiti. They'd gone to Chile and Brazil and had work and then were sort of driven out because of unemployment, change of attitude towards immigrants. They made this long and painful trek from South America through Central America all the way up to the U.S. border, and then were sent back to Haiti. And it's just so cruel. So a country that can't take care of its own citizens, so that the gangs are taking over and terrorizing everybody, now you're adding these displaced people who are being returned reluctantly and dumped literally at the airport. They literally dumped these people and dumped all their baggage on the tarmac. I mean, that is just disgusting. I know we've, we have a lot of culpability in terms of why there's political chaos in Haiti, but that seems to be the most damning evidence of late. That is outrageous, and it is damning. Most of the Haitians that made it to the U.S. border, they were forced out five or more years, forced out of Haiti, uh, because a combination of some economic factors, but those were exacerbated by by the PHTK party, which was placed in office really by, by the Obama administration and was supported under the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. Um, with U.S. support, the, the PHTK government looted the treasury through spectacular corruption and has engaged in, in an escalating attack against political dis dissidents. And with those situations, you're always going to generate uh, migration pressure, and that obviously happened. Uh, the U.S. and so the U.S. is really um, the, the, the people at the border are really the chickens coming home to roost. To a large extent, they're the result of U.S. support for repressive governments in Haiti. And so it, it is particularly outrageous and damning that we are completing the circle by, by illegally sending those people back to where they can be persecuted. Because under the Refugee Convention, which the U.S. is a party to, you cannot return somebody who's subject to persecution uh, to the, to a place where they're going to be persecuted. And you need to provide them some kind of a, a hearing, which the U.S. is refusing to do. They're just putting people on planes and, and dumping them. I believe it's 9,000 in the last month have been sent back. And again, you know, they, they, they arrive at the airport with nothing. Sometimes they get $100, sometimes they don't even get that. And uh, there was a report of one person had to walk miles home because gangs controlled the area and cars couldn't go through. 
So just in the last couple of minutes then, Brian, when is the US going to stop making life so miserable for these people in this broken country by not allowing them to elect a government that's actually going to help them as opposed to these parasitic governments that are run by criminals in league with uh, gangs and then at the back of it all you have the the morally repugnant elite, this handful of light-skinned Haitians that run the country behind the scenes. This is who we've been supporting. You mentioned Obama and Trump. It's every U.S. government as long as I can remember. So what is the policy? I mean, what's behind this policy? What's the logic of making this country so unlivable for its own people? And what do we get out of preventing them to have some self-governance that's going to take care of them as opposed to exploit them and reduce them to the chaos that they now are enduring? That's a great question, and I will I will actually answer it from, with a uh, quote from the resignation letter of Daniel Foote, who was appointed back in uh, July, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, and it gave hope to a lot of people that this would lead to a uh, a revision of of U.S. policy. And and Foote resigned, and he said, "What Haitians really want is the opportunity to chart their own course." without international puppeteering and favored candidates, but with general, but with genuine support for that course. That is you know, obviously a fairly modest expectation to allow Haitians to uh, chart their own course, but it is not one that the US was willing to do. He specifically talked about uh, the Accord for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, which is a group of people that have been meeting for months now to try to come up with, with a way out um, of, of Haiti's crisis, and it's 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 had over 600. They, they created an accord that's been signed by over 600 political parties, religious groups, women's groups, business groups, labor unions, grassroots groups, all across Haitian society, and they they've come together. Often people who have been fighting each other for as long as I've been involved in Haiti, over 25 years, but they're willing to come together to come up with this process. The U.S. is the principal obstacle to that. The U.S. is refusing to even consider that proposal. They're they're doubling down on their support for the embattled government, and they're even helping the government create its own much less inclusive alternative to the to the civil society accord. And again, that was one of the reasons why Ambassador Foote resigned, the fact that the U.S. would not even consider this very promising uh, way out that was Haitian-led. And re- really, until the U.S. makes the decision that we're willing to allow Haitians to control their own destiny, you're going to have uh, this continued problems in Haiti and also the manifestation of those problems at our borders. Well, Brian, I'm still mystified as to what the hell we get out of it. What are we protecting? What national security interest does the United States have in the continuing misery of the of the Haitian people? That's the part that is just mind-boggling and incomprehensible. And it's, it's certainly mind-boggling and incomprehensible when you look at it from a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. What I mean, obviously from the Haitians' perspective, it's it, it, it's it's outrageous. But even from a U.S. tax 
dollars perspective. We're spending money dealing with refugee flows. We spend money rebuilding Haiti when when the country uh, has to be rebuilt because we supported someone. We, we either kidnapped a president as we did in 2004, or we were supporting someone that's looting the, the treasury as we've done for the last 10 years. I mean, it really makes no sense from, from a taxpayer uh, cost benefit analysis. It makes no sense from a national security perspective, because what we're doing is creating instability in Haiti, which that creates a place where people can, can uh, you know, people we don't like to, to be operating can, can operate. Um, it also facilitates drug trafficking and lots of other things into the United States. It's really just ideology. I mean, it's ideology trumping common sense. And it's, it's an ideology rooted in, in racism that does not believe that Haitians should be able to, to run their own destiny. And until we get beyond that, uh, Haiti's never going to get beyond its current crisis. Well, Brian Concanon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much for covering this once again, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Concanon, who's a human rights lawyer and the executive director of Project Blueprint, which promotes a progressive human rights-based U.S. foreign policy. He's the founder and former director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti and lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how Republicans like Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson are cozying up to the European far right. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cass Muther, who is a professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, as well as professor at the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. He is the host of the podcast Radical, that's R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L, and his latest book is The Far Right Today. And he's a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is surprised to see U.S. Republicans cozying up to the European far right. Don't be. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cass Muda. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you identify four strands uh, in the far right global movement. But you begin your article talking about how Ted Cruz spoke over the weekend, saying we all face the same challenges, including a bold and global left that seeks to tear down cherished national and religious institutions. But he wasn't addressing the local Republican Party in Texas, but rather the far right Spanish party Vox. And we've also had Tucker Carlson on Fox News spending a week in Budapest, cozying up to Orban, the wannabe dictator there, who's created a system of uh, electoral autocracy, which the Republicans seem to be imitating. So this is quite a phenomenon. And what's your sense of whether or not this European strand uh, will influence American politics, or is the American right inward-looking? Yeah, I think in the end, 
the U.S. right is still inward looking, at least as far as the more important people within the Republican Party are concerned. Um, what they do increasingly is reach out abroad, which in itself is kind of new. But I think for most of them, their core audience is still at home and they are still very much an American phenomenon. And to be fair, they don't have to learn too much from the far right in Europe because uh, in many ways, the Republican Party is actually more far right than various radical right parties in Europe. But are they imitating the Republican Party? Are they imitating Putin's United Russia? It seems that that is the playbook, that what's going on now with this massive multi-layered voter suppression is imitating Putin. And we know that Donald Trump had a fixation about Putin, a kind of a dictator envy. And Donald Trump clearly controls the Republican Party. Is it purely, as you point out, among the four strains of the populist international, you talk about the global Christian right and Putin being an example of that. Are they imitating the Republicans, Putin's united Russia? No, I don't think that actually the Republicans are imitating Putin's Russia. I think actually the far right in Hungary is. I think the far right in Israel is. Um, I think Erdogan in Turkey is. But if you look at the voter suppression laws in the U.S., then you have to own that as Americans. This is very much a very long history um, in, the, in the United States of voter suppression. Um, and so in that sense, I don't think that they actually take that much from, um, from Putin, despite the fact that obviously, as you said, Trump himself has some kind of dictator envy. And quite a lot of re Republicans these days um, consider Putin to be an example. But what is the religious connection there? I mean, I find it extraordinary that, that some people on the American left actually think that Putin is some kind of socialist when he's, he's a far-right sort of Christian right radical. That would be the only comparison you could make. And I noticed, for example, that a few years ago, Opus Dei set up an office in Moscow. What is the kind of connection between the Bannon wing, obviously opposed to the Pope, and wanting to impose this kind of moral authoritarianism, which William Barr was certainly guilty of? What's their love affair with Putin? And I mean, we know that Putin is close to the reactionary Orthodox Church in Russia. Yeah, so the Christian right was among the first to get into Russia post-communist um, and actually had a very tense relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church who saw particularly the evangelicals as competitors. Now, when Putin came to power, I have to remember that Putin was pretty much appointed by Yeltsin and no one had ever heard of him. And so Putin came to power without really a power structure. And this, is, this explains in part why he embraced the Russian Orthodox Church, because that, as a well-established institution, gave him, gave him some, a power base. 
and he paid them back handsomely by investing a lot of state funding into rebuilding churches, but also by um, shifting his social cultural policies with regard to marriage, homosexuality, and, and other things, as well as by limiting religious freedom, which is quite ironic that the Christian right would hail Putin um, as kind of a def the defender of religion. I mean, at best, he is a defender of Christianity. That being said, Putin is also within the far right broader, very badly understood. So many hold him as this kind of defender of white Russia, of the white world, of Christianity, um, a staunch anti-Islam kind of crusader. But actually, Russia is a multinational and multi-religious country, and Muslims have far more rights in Russia than they would ever have in countries led by at least the European far right, but I'm sure um, the American as well. So again, what, what Putin offers to a certain extent is a powerful leader who is against, let's say, the liberal establishment. And as such, they have embraced him and they ignore all kind of aspects that actually show that he's not particularly Christian and he's not particularly ethnic nationalist. And again, I'm speaking with Cass Mude, who is a professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, as well as a professor at the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. He is the host of the podcast Radikal, that's R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L, and his latest book is The Far Right Today, and he's a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Surprised to see U.S. Republicans cozying up to the European far right? Don't be. So... The second strain that you identify in this populist international is national conservatism, a brainchild of the Israeli think tanker Yoram Hazoni. And this is a more secular movement that tries to encompass cultural, economic, and political elites. And I guess the example being uh, Tucker Carlson, who spoke at the National Conservatism Summit in Washington, D.C. in uh, 2019. He also, of course, was recently broadcasting on Fox from Budapest cozying up to Orban. So how significant is this movement? And you mentioned the, the Israeli right. Is that particularly influential? It is not at the moment. Um, it could be because what it tries to do is kind of create a, a merger of the traditionally conservative circles within the Republican Party or Likud and the Conservative Party in Britain and the traditionally radical right circles, including Orban, including some of the Spanish far right, the niece of uh, Marine Le Pen, <clears throat> Marion Machal, and that what they have over some of the other groups is that they they actually have an era of responsibility and an aura of responsibility, and so. The National Review, for example, is very close to this circles as well. So this is ironically a little bit more like the neoconservatives were, kind of an elite movement, um, which at this point is still not really connected to, for example, Trump, uh, outside of Tucker Carlson personally. But it has potential because it has resources and it has more legitimacy than more traditional radical right um, collaborations.
but CPAC is going to be holding hosting its 2022 meeting in Budapest. So there is, of course, the third strand is the long-standing ties between these far-right European parties like the Austrian Freedom Party and the French National Rally. And there have been examples of U.S. politicians like Steve King and Dana Rohrabach out here from California, uh, who, of course, was close to Putin. Famously, the minority leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, once said in a private conversation with Paul Ryan, I swear to God that I swear to God that Donald Trump and Dana Rohrabach are, are on Putin's payroll. So those two, of course, are no longer in uh, office now, Steve King and Dana Rohrabacher. So what does that say? Yeah, it's kind of ironic that they would lose their that they would lose their seat uh, during the Trump era, given that they predate him and they they were examples of of more isolated radical right politicians within the Republican Party, which which go back decades. Um, so this group of the traditional, the usual suspects of the European far right was also that the what Steve Bannon targeted with his so-called the movement, a group that was allegedly going to help radical right parties get into the European Parliament. Um, it has kind of died down. Uh, I haven't seen many Republican Congress members coming to visit uh, the traditional radical right parties, but it depends on how forceful, uh, how powerful they are in their own country. And I think one of the things that's problematic with Front National, Marine Le Pen, Rassemblement National, for some reason, this party is seen as much more radical than it actually is, and is now even within radical right circles abroad, is seen as like, oh, you can't touch them. Even though, again, I would argue that the Republican Party is more radical than the national rally is in France. Um, Austrian Freedom Party has a bit the same. It has always had this uh, problem of anti-Semitism. And so Republicans seem to still uh, stay away from that. But I think that we will see some shift there as well. But at the moment, this is the least developed of the four. But Putin has been funding or through the FSB and other cutouts, funding both Brexit and Le Pen's party. So what's the connection there? Well, if you purely base yourself on what we know, facts, then there's only been found true funding of one politician of Jobbik, which is actually outside of this circles. It's a traditionally an even more far-right party in Hungary than uh, Orban's party, although they have moderated more recently. And there has been a loan to uh, Rassemblement National, then Front National. But then later that bank went bankrupt, which is all very dodgy. But what it shows at the very least is that the funding itself is probably not playing a major role. Russia funds more indirectly. There are various think tanks, particularly in France, that are being funded. There are uh, media organizations that are funded. And, of course, they invest in Sputnik and in uh, RT, which have either French or German or Spanish um, circles. The direct funding of political parties, in part because that is illegal in many countries, foreign funding of political parties, is is minimal. 
Um, but there have been open collaborations between uh, far-right parties like the FPO in Austria, Lega in Italy, and RN in France, and United Russia. So let's turn then to the fourth strand, and that is the far-right conservative movement in the Spanish-speaking world, and the right-wing Spanish party, Vox, is one of the leading proponents or propellants of this. And tell me about the Desneso Foundation that's funding a lot of this. So Vox originated out of the Partido Popular, the popular party, which is the leading conservative party in Spain. And its leader, Abascal, and some of the others works in this foundation, the NESO, which has an international presence, including in D.C. And a little bit under the radar, they have been reaching out, particularly to the Americas, Latin, South America and North America. And um, earlier this year, they had the Charter of Madrid, which by and large is um, a really a kind of a hybrid conservative slash radical right charter, which allegedly is against gender ideology and communism. And it speaks to the obsessions of both, let's say, the respectable conservatives, the conservative religious Catholics, but but also among the evangelicals, and the traditional radical right in this fight against what they consider then this kind of cultural Marxism. And one of the most striking and I think worrying aspects of it is there's no doubt that Vox is a radical right party, which even like um, flirts with with Franco um, kind of revisionism. But this charter of Madrid has been signed by a whole host of um, parliamentarians from Latin American countries. Um, and in certain countries from almost all right-wing parties. Um, and so that is where Cruz spoke, which makes it extra interesting because there are also some weird links now with the US, but they have been like um, Grover Norquist, for example, like the anti-tax um, and, and clearly a front for uh, right-wing interest person who has also signed the Charter of Madrid. So it's a very broad group of people. At the same time, definitely not marginal people in terms of political context and power. Well, of course, Cruz, um, even though he has a, a Hispanic name, I don't believe he speaks Spanish. But how much is this tied into the the Latin American right, which, of course, has always been funded here in many ways by (laughs) going back decades by the CIA. Now, I think actually that this is all about domestic politics. Um, We see that as long as Trump doesn't make it clear that he will run in 2024, this is an open field for the Republican primaries. And one of the things that comes out of the 2020 elections is this hyped sense that Hispanics, Hispanic voters are up for grabs for the Republican Party. And I think it's it's totally overplayed, but doesn't matter. One of the things that we have seen is that in certain circles, an anti-socialist agenda played well with Hispanic voters. And I think this is where Cruz positions himself um, right. by by speaking through these politicians to, in a sense, the, the electorates 
of Ecuadorian descent, of Cuban descent, of Venezuelan descent in the U.S. Well, indeed, Donald Trump got more votes from Hispanics in 2020 than he did in 2016. Yes, he did, although I mean, still the vast, vast majority of Hispanics sure. uh, vote for Democrats. Right, but it's, at least on the other side, it's growing. So just in closing then, Kasmuda, should we be concerned about this sort of global populist international? I mean, the populist leaders around the world, uh, I mean, <laughs> if Trump comes back, then they'll be pretty much in control of the United States, of Russia, of China, of Turkey, of the Philippines, uh, you name it. Yeah, I don't consider all of these far right, but... I think we should be concerned, although not as concerned as we should be about those individuals within their own country. Like, I mean, we should be far more concerned about the Republicans coming back in the U.S. than Republicans being involved in creating some kind of international connection. But I do think it is important to see what is playing out internationally, because so far it has there hasn't been much. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why Trump actually didn't change much in terms of foreign policy, um, because he didn't have really a, a strategy of changing the world and changing institutions. And so you do see now that within the Republican Party, also among college Republicans and young Republicans, there are, there are very clear relationships outside, abroad, to the radical right, and that can become something more fundamental and close. So I think it is important to keep an eye on it, but at the same time, the real struggle is still domestic. Sure, and Trump was never about America first. He was always about Trump first. So I guess he's an anomaly. I thank you for joining us, Kasmuda. Thanks Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kasmuda, who's a professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia, as well as a professor at the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. He is the host of the podcast Radical, that's R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L, and his latest book is The Far Right Today, and he's a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Surprised to see U.S. Republicans cozying up to the European far right? Don't be. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half